The book is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, and the author tells the story of being in an abusive relationship with a woman. And it's not like the the woman she was with kicked the shit out of her or anything, um, although she did grab her really hard and she uh, drove recklessly with her in the car and it was really scary and she thought she was going to die, but mostly the abuse was psychological. And I really related to parts of the story because I was in a relationship with a guy who gaslit me and made me feel crazy. And it's really difficult for me to talk about it or write about it because I always feel like I'm trying to prove that he was psychotic and horrible. And I always feel like I need to make people understand. And every time I do, I feel desperate. So I'd rather just not talk about it. And Carmen is the first person to accurately capture the way that I have felt. And um, and she does it so brilliantly. So I'll, I'll give an example really quick up front. The, the dream house, the book's called In the Dream House, and the dream house it refers to the house that she lived in with this woman. And by the way, she never mentions the woman's name. She's just called the woman. So on page 223, she writes, When you try to talk about the dream house afterward, some people listen. Others politely nod while slowly closing the door behind their eyes. You might as well be a proselytizing Jehovah's Witness or an encyclopedia peddler. Kind to you in person, what they say to others makes its way back to you. We don't know for certain that it's as bad as she says. The woman from the dream house seems perfectly fine, even nice. You will never feel as desperate and fucked up and horrible as when you hear those things. Oh, and I read this and I was just like, yes, this is like, wow, this is exactly how I have felt. Um, and I think that the reason that this works so well is because she used an analogy. She said, you might as well be a proselytizing Jehovah's Witness or an encyclopedia peddler. So, she is describing herself through the eyes of the people that she's talking to about this. And I thought that was really interesting. So that's one, that's one um, tool that I can use when I am trying to talk about these things, is to use analogies when I can. So you, you might have noticed in this paragraph that it's written in second person. So the, the whole book is written in second per person, which is very interesting. Um, I don't read too many books like that. I remember reading the book You by Caroline Kepnes. I don't know if you guys have read that, but that shit's really dark um, and so fucked up. And then they turned it into that Netflix series with uh, Penn Badgley and he's a psycho uh, stalker and kills people. Um, I don't know why I read that. I don't know why I watched it. I watched season one and then I started watching season two and I was like, I cannot watch this again. So I don't read books like that or watch things like that anymore. But anyway, it's really scary and it's written in second person. Um, so throughout the book, she's always referring to herself um, when she's talking to you, her past self. And it feels like she's talking to her, like the younger version of her. And then sometimes as I was reading it, I felt like she was talking to me um, because I related to some of the things that she was talking about. The other interesting thing about the way the book is formatted is that each page or section has its own header and the header, for the most part, starts with the uh, starts with dream house as fill in the blank. Um, sometimes it would be like a few pages, but sometimes it's only like a paragraph. I found the the headers to be a little bit distracting because they're on almost every page. But I really liked that every page was like this short little vignette that almost felt like a little standalone essay that you could read on its own. Um, let me give you an example 
of how the book read. So on page 86, at the top of the page, it says, Dreamhouse as lost in translation. And then here's the whole page. It's just a paragraph. I'm going to read it to you. How to read her coldness. She is preoccupied. She is unhappy. She is unhappy with you. You did something and now she's unhappy and you need to find out what it is so she will stop being unhappy. You talk to her. You are clear. You think you are clear. You say what you are thinking and you say it after thinking a lot. And yet when she repeats what you've said back to you, nothing makes sense. Did you say that? Really? You can't remember saying that or even thinking it. And yet she is letting you know that it was said and you definitely meant it that way. Oh my God. It's just like, it tore me apart. Like this is just, so, it felt so similar to how I felt in my relationship. And this was, this was the whole, the whole, I don't know, I can't call it a chapter, but yeah, this was the whole thing. Dreamhouse is lost in translation. And then this one paragraph. Um, here's one that was only one sentence that just like made me go, oh my God, like, whoa, that was so powerful. On page 112, it says Dreamhouse as epiphany. And then it's one sentence and it says, most types of domestic abuse are completely legal. Jeez, that hit me in the gut. Um, I want to do this. I love this. I, I don't know if you guys read um, Twilight. I read it so many years ago that um, I'm going to butcher the what actually happened. But in Twilight, there is a point when I believe um, the main character, Bella, is alone and her... I forget, I forget his name. Um, <laughs> the vampire that she's in love with leaves. And you turn the page and it's just, it says, I think it says the month, September. And then you turn the next page and it says October. And then you turn the next page and it says November. And it's just like months of just not seeing him and her being alone. And you can just tell that it's like this really dark, depressing um, time for her. And when I read that, I was just like, holy shit. Like that, that really blew me away. And so I think finding places where you can, you know, have all this white space on the page and just say very little where you want it to really um, punch the reader. So I was thinking about this format and I was thinking, what if my book is a cohesive story, but but also is kind of written as these like little mini essays. So it's not like fully David Sedaris because David Sedaris just write books of essays that have nothing to do with each other. But I was thinking if I could write more like this, where it would just be like, little mini essays that are all connected. Um, so like part one would be like, you know, stories from my childhood and then stories from high school and college and when I lived in New York and LA and so on. Um, what I like about this approach is that it's what I'm basically already, already doing with my newsletter. It's already the way that I write. Like each week I will write a little story from my past or from my present. And what I can do is I can just keep writing these stories and then figure out how they connect. Okay, so this next, next paragraph, I read this and it made me so happy that I just wanted to figure out why. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you and then we're going to talk about it. So she's at this party and she's high and there's this woman Val there. And Val is her girlfriend's other girlfriend. So she's in this polyamorous relationship. She is completely monogamous with the woman in the dream house, but... Val is part of the picture. She's the other girlfriend. It's very weird. So, okay. On page 53, she writes, Val visits you on the floor, brings you pieces of cheese. You stick one in your mouth, meditate on its smooth and mouthfeel and nutty sweetness. You like her so much. She is so kind and open, and you respect her fortitude. Another piece, this one salty and crumbly, so pleasant in the way it comes apart. 
How did you get so lucky to have all these new people in your life? The next piece is fresh mozzarella. And as Val helps you stand, you think to yourself, mozzarella is basically water cheese. And then you go to another room and fall asleep. (laughs) So... So I love how she takes you into this inebriated moment with her when she's high. She shows the action of the scene, which is Val giving her the cheese and her eating it and the way it tastes and feels, interspersed with her thoughts at the time while she's high. And this reminded me of the tender bar when J.R. Moringer writes about the first time he got drunk and now he's at home and he's lying in bed and he writes... Somewhere in the house, a radio was playing. Beautiful song, I thought. Then the bouncy rhythm started to make me more nauseous. Would I ever be well enough to enjoy music again? So this question is something that he thought in that moment when he was drunk. Of course he would be able to enjoy music again. But right at that moment, he didn't know. And so he asks, would I ever be well enough to enjoy music again? So it's very funny to include your thoughts during these moments as if they're happening right then. Let me keep going with this passage from The Tender Bar. He writes, I tried to fall asleep, but words and ideas leaped around in my head. I thought I was experiencing penetrating flashes of insight, and I wanted to write them down. I couldn't get out of bed, however, because the mattress was still rising. Notice he didn't say, I thought the mattress was still rising. He says it definitively because he's telling us the story from that perspective in that moment. So I was thinking, okay, how can I do this? Well, something obvious would be if I were to write about like the first time I did Molly and I just felt so happy and so much love for everyone. So I wouldn't write, you know, I felt so happy and so much love for everyone. I could write something like, oh my God, I love everyone at this concert right now and I want them all to know. Um, Or I remember at the, at the time I was at this weird free outdoor concert after a Phillies game when I did it. And And I remember there were these huge trash cans and people were dancing on them. And I remember looking at the people in the trash cans and thinking, I want to be dancing with those people on those trash cans. Um, So something like that, where it's something that you think in that moment and then you say it in the present tense of as if it as if you're thinking it right then. So another thing that I could do is I could um, ask a question because I love how in Carmen's um, book, she writes, how did you get so lucky to have all these new people in your life? And then JR, right, would, would I ever be well enough to enjoy music again? So there's something about asking a question in these moments that is really, feels very vulnerable and sometimes funny. So <laughs> I have been transcribing my journal from college. I've been doing it slowly because it's kind of hard to read my life back at this time. But I just read about the first time I gave a blowjob to a guy. (laughs) And when I read it, I was so shocked because I did not remember it. And I thought that it happened later with a different guy. So in my journal, this is really embarrassing. In my journal, I wrote this question. (laughs) Actually, he didn't even come, so does it count? (laughs) And so when I was rereading the story after, you know, this new, this new, um, tool that I have, I was like, okay, this question that I asked is super real and super vulnerable and funny. So if I were to tell that story, because you know, in my journal, like it's just a mess in there. Like there's, there's so much extra stuff that doesn't need to be in there if I were to actually like rewrite these stories. But that's, that question is really gold because I'm asking genuinely, does it count? And so that would be a good question to include. All right, let me talk about two awesome metaphors 
and and why I thought this was so good. I am just going to read this page to you. It's called Dream House as Naming the Animals. And she writes on page 134. Adam had one job, really. God said, see this fuzzy thing and that scaly thing there in the water and these feathery things flying through the air? I really need you to give them some names. I've been making the world for a week and I'm exhausted. Let me know what you decide. So Adam sat there. What a puzzler, right? It's obvious to us now that that is a squirrel and that is a fish and that is a bird. But how was Adam supposed to know that? He wasn't just newly born. He was newly created. He didn't have years of life experience to support this creative enterprise or anyone to teach him about it. When I think about him, just sitting there with his brand new fist under his brand new chin, looking vaguely perturbed and puzzled and anxious, I feel a lot of sympathy. Putting language to something for which you have no language is no easy feat. Oh, that was so good. Like, she's telling this other story that is seemingly unrelated, and then bam, she hits you with it. Putting language to something for which you have no language is no easy feat. I just loved this so much. Okay, let me give you one more, and then I can talk a little bit more about why I loved it so much. So here she's writing about a vaccine. She says, Dreamhouse as vaccine on page 238. Oh my God. She doesn't write it in second person. I just realized as I was about to read it. She writes it in first person. Wow. Okay. When I was a kid, I learned that you develop immunity when an illness rages through your body. Your body is brilliant even when you are not. It doesn't just heal. It learns. It remembers. All of this, of course, if the virus doesn't kill you first. After the dream house, I developed a sixth sense. It goes off at random times, meeting a new classmate or coworker, a friend's new girlfriend, a stranger at a party, a physical revulsion that comes on the heels of nothing at all, something akin to the sour liquid rush of saliva that precedes vomiting. Inconvenient, irritating, but important. My brilliant body's brilliant warning. So this is such a great metaphor and where she's talking about the virus and the virus is actually, you know, the the girlfriend. Um, and with both of these, naming the animals and the vaccine, she never explicitly says what she's comparing it to. And that was what I took from these is that sometimes when you write a metaphor, you don't have to be so um, explicit. You don't have to state the obvious, especially when there's so much context around around the metaphor that you've already been writing about this topic for a while. And, and she has been in this book. She's been writing the whole book about it. Um, you don't have to explain your metaphors. And when you don't explain your metaphors, it's actually, um, when there's when there's all this context around it, it's easy for the reader to put it together and it feels more satisfying to not be told what the metaphor represents. All right, I have one quick example of show, don't tell. I know, I talk about show, don't tell a lot. Show, don't tell is best explained through examples. So I think whenever there's a really good example, I want to share it with you. On uh, page 25, she is, this is very early on in their relationship, and she's going to take a road trip to Savannah, and she asks the woman if she would like to come with her. So on page 25, she writes, so you ask her if she'd like to go with you. She says, yes, you buy new underwear at the mall. Like, yes, this is so good. When I read you buy new underwear at the mall, I, I smiled. I was like, oh, that's so good. Because she's not saying she was so excited or thrilled or ecstatic or nervous, all the obvious things that we know she's feeling when the woman says she wants to go with her. She says what she does. You buy new underwear at the mall. So good. This next section made me like gasp. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. She does a whole section on choose your own adventure. Let me just show you what she did and then I'll, I'll tell you why I love this so much. So on page 162, she writes, you wake up and the air is milky and bright. 
The room glows with a kind of effervescent contentment, despite the boxes and clothes and dishes. You think to yourself, this is the kind of morning you could get used to. When you turn over, she is staring at you. The luminous innocence of the light curdles in your stomach. You don't remember ever going from awake to afraid so quickly. You were moving all night, she says. Your arms and elbows touched me. You kept me awake. If you apologize profusely, go to page 163. If you tell her to wake you up next time your elbows touch her in your sleep, go to page 164. If you tell her to calm down, go to page 166. So this goes on for like, I don't know, seven pages where you can just jump all around and choose your own adventure. And so to give you an idea of like what some of the other pages look like. um, So this last one, she said, if you tell her to calm down, go to page 166. So I go to page 166 and it says, are you kidding? You'd never do this. Don't try to convince any of these people that you'd stand up for yourself for one second. Get out of here. (laughs) And then some pages were not actually pages that you were supposed to go to. So on page 167, she writes, you shouldn't be on this page. There's no way to get here from the choices given to you. You flipped here because you got sick of the cycle. You wanted to go out, to get out. You're smarter than me. And then um, another page, she writes, that's not how it happened, but okay, we can pretend. I'll give it to you just this once. Um, so this was really fun. It was, it was just like a really fun little like change in the book, you know, like it mixed it up a little bit. And I was thinking how, you know, it's nice to surprise the reader with something. And so um, to go back to my my journal from college and having a section in my book about college, um, the way it's written in my journal, my diary, um, is is really funny. And, and you know, it takes me really back to that age and that time that I was in. And I was wondering if it would be cool that when you get to the section on college, it is written as if you're reading my diary. And the whole section on college is just like diary entries. Um, it would be very different from the rest of the book. And I, I'm not sure if it works because um, it would be pretty early on in the book. Because like it's, it's going to be like the first section is going to be, you know, my hometown, which will cover like childhood through high school. And then the next section would be college. So then for you to jump right there to something completely different, I don't know if it would be too jarring for the reader. Like the choose your own adventure came, you know, on page 163. So it's like way further in the book. So you've, you know, you've, you've been in a rhythm, you've been reading for a while and it's okay to jump and do something different. So to do it that early, I don't know if that would like kind of throw the reader off in a bad way. Um, But anyway, it's something that I'm considering. Okay, so the whole book... I think that she's eventually going to leave her abuser. But then I came to this passage on 190 and she writes, you talk on the phone, but soon she stops picking up, stops responding to your texts. If you don't want me to worry, you tell her when she finally answers. If you want me to feel safe, you're not doing a very good job. And then later on the page, she, the woman breaks up with her over Skype and says, I still want to be your friend. And I read this and I was just like, oh my God, no. You think she's going to leave her eventually, but she doesn't and neither did I. I stayed until he broke up with me and saying that out loud and thinking it and writing it, it feels pathetic. Like it's, there's so much shame attached to it. Uh, with, with my story, he, he made promises to me. We call him John. Um, and I can't remember exactly what he said to me, but he made me feel like we were going to work it out. And then he ignored me, just like the woman ignored her. And when I finally spoke to him on the phone, he told me that we were already broken up. Now, how can I be broken up with and not know it? 
at the time, I wondered if it because I'm an idiot or if I was in denial or if I was crazy. Like that's how it made me feel. Now that I've had so much separation from it, I know that he made me feel like that and I was being gaslit. But unfortunately, I don't have the text exchanges from that time period because I eventually blocked him. I do wonder if it's possible to retrieve those lost messages. Um, I wonder if it's worth it. You know, like sometimes I don't want to go back to that time. I don't want to think about it. But, you know, with Carmen writing her piece and, and sharing her story and how much it touched me and how much I related to it, you know, it's important to tell our stories. So um, if I'm, I wonder if you, if anybody knows how to do this, if it's possible, then let me know because I'm interested to see if I can, what, how, how it actually ended. Oh, but then I have to go back to that time. But anyway, okay. This next line resonated with me so much. So I'm going to share it and then, and then we can talk about it. On page 230, she writes, how quickly your desire curdled when you saw her for what she was, like the scene in The Shining when Jack Nicholson pulls away from a sexy woman to find a decomposing creature in her place. Yeah, this is so spot on to what I felt. Like as soon as we broke up, I was repulsed by him and a little bit afraid of him. But I don't want to write I was repulsed by him and a little bit afraid of him him because that's telling you and it's not showing you anything. So what she does here is, and this goes back to what I said before, she does an analogy. She compares it to the scene in the, the movie, The Shining, which is a classic movie, a scene that, you know, most people can picture it right away when Jack Nicholson pulls away from the sexy woman to find a decomposing creature in her place. Like, yes, it's so good. Now, I do have a very vivid memory of going to his apartment after we had broken up. We had agreed on a time for me to go there when he wouldn't be there. I think he was like at work or something that I could get my stuff. And I remember that people were asking me that if I saw him, if I was going to have sex with him. And I thought that was so disgusting and so far from my reality. Like I didn't even know how to respond to it. I was just like, what are you talking about? And I, I don't know why I didn't bring somebody with me because I was really scared. But I remember I like circled his block a while because I just kept thinking that he was going to be like lurking somewhere watching me. Um, I was just really afraid. And I remember when I got to his apartment, I was, he lived on a second floor and I was like sprinting up and down the stairs to get my stuff. Um, and just like in a panic, like sweating that I was going to see him. And the reason I was scared is because not only did I know finally who he really was, but he knew that I knew who he really was. And so then there was no need for him to pretend anymore. And that scared me. Um, but anyway, finding ways to to talk about these things in analogies, it might be the, the, the way to, to move forward with it. Okay, so we are at the end. And by the end of the book, she is, this is a spoiler alert if you're going to read the book. She ends up with Val, the other woman who was dating the woman in the dream house. So I'm going to read the last page to you. On page 239, she writes, that there's a real ending to anything is, I'm pretty sure, the lie of all autobiographical writing. You have to choose to stop somewhere. You have to let the reader go. Where to stop this story? Val's in my wedding on a hot day in June? Some narratively satisfying confrontation between the woman from the dream house and me? Should I loop back to a memory from the dream house? A lovely one? Will that work? A contrast between what could have been and what was? 
A memory of the two of us freshly returned from a local winery, sipping on a spicy Zinfandel and eating some kind of feta dip and telling a story. One day, the woman from the dream house will die, and I will die, and Val will die, and John and Laura will die, and my brother will die, and my parents will die, and her parents will die, and anyone who ever knew any of us will die. Is that the end of the story? There's a Panamanian folktale that ends with, my tale goes only to here. It ends, and the wind carries it off. It's the only true kind of ending. Sometimes you have to tell a story, and somewhere you have to stop. So, I loved this ending. I loved how we get this behind the scenes of like her process of trying to figure out like what is a good ending and how, what her ending will be. Um, it, you know, cause these are really great, the great questions to consider for like, okay, where would you stop the story? Oh, her wedding day. That might be good. Oh, a confrontation between her and the woman and from the dream house. That might be good. Or do you go back to a happy memory from the dream house? And I love how she says, would that work? Um, so I thought it was really interesting. Now, the reason why the ending that she wrote is so good to me is that I was glued to the entire page right up until the final words. And that is my barometer for a good ending. So I've been thinking about where to stop my own story. And I'm not sure, you know, my story is about working towards my authentic self. And I don't think I'll ever get there. I think I'll always be moving towards her. So where do I end? I don't know. Maybe it ends before I have my kids. Maybe my ending hasn't even happened yet. I'm I'm trying to trust that the ending will present itself to me. Um, I just started a Google Doc. I I divided it into those sections I mentioned to you before about like all the different chapters of my life of like where I've lived. And I'm going through my essays and my newsletter um, to figure out which stories that I've already written I want to include, that I want to write about. And so once I put all that together, I'm, I'm hoping that there's going to be some kind of theme or through line or something that ties it all together. And then that will make it easy for me to decide like, okay, well, which stories are relevant to the, the main story that I'm trying to tell? Um, so that's where I am now, just playing around with things. So that's it for In the Dream House. Currently, I'm reading Lost and Found by Katherine Schultz. And there are a couple moments early on reading it where I was like, wow, this writing is so beautiful and eloquent and I could never write something like that. But then very quickly, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's fine because I have a different style of writing than her and that's okay. Um, I had a dream recently to go back to our, our book here in the Dream House. Um, and when I woke up, I felt... Like, oh my God, that was so profound. So in the dream, I am playing field hockey on the same team as Erin Matson. And if you guys don't know who Erin Matson is by now, she's amazing. She's the best field hockey player in the country. Um, she graduated from UNC last year and then immediately became the head coach at UNC. And if you guys don't know, UNC is the best field hockey program in the country. And so anyway, in the dream... We're on the same team and I, I want to be doing whatever she's doing to get better because I want to be as good as her. You know, after practice, I'm like saying like, okay, what drills is she doing? What skill work is she doing? But then in the dream, I keep, I keep skipping around. I'm trying different things. I'm, I'm getting bored and I'm not getting better fast enough. So when I woke up, I realized that, well, first let me say, I loved playing field hockey in college and everything. And Um, I don't have regrets. Like I don't really like to have regrets about things, but I do kind of like, 
I've always had this like wonder of like, oh, I wonder if I did go play at a bigger school like UNC, you know, I, I wouldn't have been recruited, but if I walked on, I would have gotten so much better than I did playing at a smaller school because I would have, you know, been surrounded by such greatness. And when you are surrounded by that, you just, you get better. And so, I, you know, I've had these thoughts of just like, oh, I wonder what if, what if, what if. But after this dream, I realized that I would never have been as good as Aaron Matson because even though I loved field hockey, I always felt like an imposter. I was good, but not great. I was I was always, I always loved it and I, I always was committed to it, but I was also interested in other things. And writing is the one thing that I love so much and I don't ever doubt myself. Yes, it's hard, but I believe in myself and I have confidence in my writing and I just love doing it. And I just know that this is my thing, the same way that field hockey is Aaron Matson's thing. And so what I realized further is that and I know I've talked about this thing before of like wanting to be famous and like when I was young I wanted to be an actress but really I've always just wanted to be famous and now I'm like really leaning into this fame thing because I am going to be famous for my writing as long as I keep pushing myself so I don't know if that was like super rambly like you know when you tell somebody you start to tell somebody a dream and then you like realize it doesn't even make sense Like, I don't know if that's how it feels for you, but for me, I am super inspired and motivated right now to be doing what I'm doing. And if you're listening to this, thank you for being on this ride with me. If there is a memoir recommendation that you have for me, please let me know. If you are getting any value out of these, please let me know. I love to hear from you guys. Until next time.